All right. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and get the, the first uh, visual up there, and let's begin. And uh, there we go, Revelation Revealed. We're going to look tonight at the glorified Messiah in chapter 1. And I want to say a couple of things as we get started. First of all, this is going to take some time. Now, you know, I looked at several different ways to kind of go quick, more quickly through this, and we are going to go more quickly than I did when I taught this before, but you don't want to dilute the Word of God. You don't want to water it down, and you don't want to skip over stuff that really matters. So I'm asking you guys just to be ready to be taught and to give it time, because tonight's going to be foundational. We're going to look at some foundational principles to, to looking uh, at the book of Revelation. And I'm just going to lay the foundation. We're going to get into some neat stuff about the glorified Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But every week, it's really going to get stronger. Today, I was studying chapter 17, and chapter 17 just blew my mind. It is so powerful when we get into so many things like the Antichrist, the Mark of the Beast, things that are happening taking shape in our world right now, this moment. Prophecy is galloping, and God's Word is turning out to be not just kind of true, not mostly true, but 100% true. And so tonight, let's lay a foundation. I want to look first at the man that God used to write this, the book of Revelation, the old apostle John. So let's look at something that happened with him. And if y'all want to just stand with me to read one or just a few verses, then we'll be seated or I'll let you be seated and I'll read the rest. But let's honor God's Word and look at this. How many of you came tonight expecting God to bless you? How many of you, once again, have said to yourself and to others, what in the world is going on in this world? All right, well, this is going to answer a lot of it. Uh, Jesus said to the Apostle John a third time. Now, this is at right before Jesus ascends. He's dealing with John, the Apostle, and he says, feed my sheep. Well, he said that to Peter. And I tell you the truth, when you were younger, now he's talking to Peter. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. So he's saying this to Peter, not John. Now Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And we know that Peter was hung upside down on a cross. Now then he said to him, follow me. Now Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is the way John always referred to himself. Wouldn't even name himself. Just the, the disciple that Jesus loved. And he's following along, listening to Jesus talk about Peter's life and how it would end. And it says, Peter turned and saw that disciple who Jesus loved, uh, following them. And this was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And that's understandable. I've just been told I'm going to be martyred. And here's another disciple behind me. And I want things to shake out fair. So he says, what about him? And Jesus gave a classic response that you need to remember when, next time you envy somebody. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain until, alive until I return, everybody say the next few words with me. 
What is that to you? Isn't that a great answer? Now, you must follow me. Because of this, the rumors spread among the brothers that this disciple, that being John, would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive till I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearts tonight. Now, will you just breathe a prayer with me and say, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you better listen. This is going to be good tonight. <clears throat> now, I've got, to, I've got a lot of... Uh, what I'm going to be saying in note form up here so you can follow along. And like I said, it's going to be in the binders. If you should get one of those binders, the same notes are in those binders. But let's look at this now. In these passages, Jesus predicted that John would live much longer than Peter. He is the only one of the twelve not martyred. All eleven of the twelve were martyred. But in his older years, we know that the plan that Jesus had for him, the reason Jesus did not let him get martyred was so that in his later years he would receive what we're about to get into, the book of Revelation. This profound revelation from the risen and glorified Messiah. John was banished to a lonely island called Patmos for his witness. He was sent off to be a slave on the island of Patmos. Patmos was located in the Aegean Sea around 60 miles southwest of Ephesus and 100 miles east of Athens. And let me just, I know it's kind of hard for you to see, but there's Patmos right there where that red arrow's pointing. Right there, John was banished, way out there in the middle of that sea on that lonely island. All by himself, a few other slaves there. Patmos was tiny. It was about 10 miles long and about 6 miles wide. Man. That's like my neighborhood or something. And that's what he was banished to. It was barren of trees. It was extremely rocky. In other words, it was not a vacation resort. This was not Hawaii. He was banished to a very depressing place. It was on this tiny island that John was enslaved in chains. He's put there in chains because of his testimony of Jesus Christ. He was forced to work the mines of the island with nothing but criminals. Can you imagine that? You being sent to an island by yourself with a bunch of hardened criminals chained and made to work in mines. That would not make your day. You would have to pray, wouldn't you? Now, because of John's connection to it, Patmos today is a destination for Christian pilgrimage. Visitors can see the cave where John is said to have received his revelation, the cave of the apocalypse, and several monasteries on the island are dedicated to St. John. But I want to kind of give you an idea of what he got banished to, what it looked like, and how in the natural it was very, very gloomy. Now, at the time of John's banishment, the church was experiencing vicious persecution. Nero had burned Christians in his garden. And now Domitian, when John wrote this revelation, Domitian 
was wreaking havoc with the church. When Nero wanted to blame somebody for the things going wrong in Rome, he blamed the Christians. He tied them to stakes. He tarred them. He set them up in his garden on stakes and lit them on fire for the entertainment of the depraved Romans. Think about that. This is the world that John lived in. John's revelation came at a time of an anti-Christian state. It was very anti-Christian. The Roman government and a multitude of anti-Christian religions were competing and vying for dominance over Christianity. The immediate intent of the revelation was to provide encouragement. This is why Jesus initially gave it to him, to bring encouragement to the believers of his day that Jesus was Lord and in control. And can I tell you tonight, Jesus is Lord and he's in control. He's in control. It may not always look like it. It sure didn't look like it to John in the natural. But when he received this revelation, Jesus let him know in no uncertain terms, hey, I'm in charge, I'm in control, I'm sovereign, I am the ruling God. And Revelations is also an evangelistic appeal to the lost. Man, if you can go through Revelations and stay lost, you got something up on me. Because this book ought to get you saved if you don't know Jesus. All right? His revelation reached far beyond his day. Do you think that he imagined when he received this revelation and wrote it down as the Lord told him to, that 21 centuries later we would be reading it? Never. That's the power of God. You never know the impact of your life. All right? And it has rolled down to the very end of time and into eternity, this incredible book. Now, here's what we're going to see in the book of Revelation. We're going to see that Jesus Christ is Lord and Master of all history. Say with me, history is His story. Do you believe that? Yeah, it is. Now, here's another thing we're going to see. The accurate prediction of the rise and fall of world empires. It is amazing how God nailed world empires that were yet to be, that they would come and they would go. We're going to see that. We're going to see an incredible cosmic battle between forces of light and darkness that is going on viciously right now. We are in an incredible spiritual warfare right now. All right? We're going to see 21 terrible judgments falling on a Christ-rejecting world. It will be somber in here when I go through these judgments. These 21 judgments, the seal judgments, the bowl judgments, so on and so forth, these 21 judgments are staggering, and they are somber. It will not be jump up and shout time. It will be, who do I know that's lost so that I can win them to Jesus? Because this is going to come in the great tribulation period that we're going to read a lot about. And I personally believe, folks, I can't tell you how things are lining up and already in place right now for the great tribulation to begin. So we're going to see those judgments one by one. We're also going to see an evil anti-Christian, anti-Christ society set up by the most diabolical, evil, wicked ruler to ever set foot on the world stage, the Antichrist, probably alive somewhere on earth right now. We're going to see the establishment of a one-world economy a one-world religion, and a one-world political system. We're hearing all kinds of things about the new world order. 
That is not by mistake. John saw that coming 21 centuries ago. We're going to see the total destruction of Antichrist and of his world system. It's going to be destroyed by the return of Jesus Christ. I can't wait to get there. Amen. And then we're going to see the, the mother of all wars, the worst war in the history of all mankind, the war of Armageddon taking place in the valley of Megiddo. We're going to see that and who the players are and how those players are lined up right now like John said they would be. We're going to see the glorious return of Jesus Christ as the Lion of Judah. Amen. We're going to see it. We're going to see a thousand years of peace under the rule of Christ, uh, the millennial reign of Jesus where the lion lays down with the lamb. We beat our swords into plowshares or, or into uh, plows and, and there is war no more. We're going to see that. And we're going to see a final brief rebellion against him and then the final great white throne judgment of sinners. Keep this in mind that every single person that's ever lived and died is going to be resurrected. Not just believers, unbelievers will be resurrected and brought before the great white throne of judgment and they will be judged for their sins and it's a somber, somber, somber moment. And just get ready for that. I tell you, I think this series is going to turn all of you into evangelists. Amen? And then eternity begins. All right. Now let me give you some simple keys to understanding the revelation. Are you ready? First, it's not always chronological. It does not always happen in order. It happens, it is told, it is given to us as John saw it. All right? So John will sometimes jump from the future to the past, then back to the future. Now let me give you an example. Jesus is born in Revelation chapter 12. He's exalted in Revelation chapter 5. And he's walking in the midst of his churches in chapter 1. That's backward. But that's the way that John wrote it down. Here's another example. The beast who attacks God's two witnesses in chapter 11 is not brought into existence until chapter 13. So he who is brought into existence in chapter 13 attacks in chapter 11. It's not always in chronological order. This is not to be confusing. I'm just prepping you so that when we get there, you understand it. Now, John did write as it came to him. The Revelation constantly uses the words. You're going to hear this over and over again. Like or as or appeared to be or something like. Because you've got a first century man who's being shown 20th and 21st century events. And he's, he's searching for pictorial words, for ways to express and explain what he's seeing. So you're going to hear him all the time going, it was like, it was as, or it appeared to be, or it was something like. He's grasping for ways to describe what he's seen. So he uses pictorial language though the, through the use of metaphors and similes, and you're going to hear that a lot. For instance, if you and I were watching an Amtrak train speed by, we would say something like, it shot by me like a bullet. Or watching a firework display, we might say, that skyrocket fell like 
a shooting star. Because that's the best you can do. Well, he's going to give us the best he could come up with. He's, he's grasps, grasping for words. John is a first century man describing way later events. I personally believe he's describing atomic blasts. He's describing meteorite showers. He is describing uh, 21st century weaponry. And he doesn't know what to do with what he sees except give a word to it. And so we're going to, we'll wade through that. And really it's very clear. It's not to be confusing at all. But I'm just kind of letting you know the way he did this. Now, why should we study the Revelation? Why does it even matter? Well, obviously, look around you. It matters to a lot of people, this book. Here's why. It's part of the Bible. That's good enough. Amen? It's part of the Bible. So we ought to be studying it if it's part of the Bible. No story is complete without reading the last chapter. Revelation is the last chapter in God's book describing how the beginning in Genesis ends up. Genesis is the beginning of things. Revelation is the ending of things. Genesis is the beginning of history as we know it. Revelation is the end of history as we know it. All right? Revelation gives us a sense of urgency, guaranteed. Men must accept Christ now because Revelation events could begin at any time. I am so convinced Revelation events are at the door. And you're going to see it. All right? And most of all, there are a total of 66 books in our Bible, but only one of them promises some kind of a special blessing for those who read and keep the words contained in it. And that's the book of Revelation. Did you know the book we're about to study has a special promise attached to it that if you study it, read it, internalize it, and meditate on it, there is a blessing for you? Did you know that? Here's what it says, Revelations 1.3. This is out of the Message Bible. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And He blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. So turn to your neighbor and tell them, you're about to get blessed. Isn't that a a cool promise? All right. Now let's begin. Revelations 1.1. Here is how John opens it up. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John. So John's telling us, here's a revelation. I received this revelation by a visitation from an angel. Now, Revelation, just so you'll know what he had in his mind when he wrote it in the Greek language, Revelation is from the Greek word apocalypsis. And we get apocalypse from this word. It means to bring to light. So we're sharing something tonight that God brought out of darkness into light. He is doing whether, what he's doing with the Revelation is bringing out of hiding or out of cover things that had never been revealed before. We would never know these things had God not revealed them to us. It was given to show His servants, and that's us, things which must shortly take place. Now that little phrase, must shortly take place, I know what you're thinking, and a lot of critics have said this about Revelations. Well, if it's going to shortly take place, and John said that, 
Well, it hadn't taken place in the 21th century, so I wouldn't call that shortly take place. If he wrote to the seven churches, it was shortly going to take place. But ah, shortly take place is a Greek expression, meaning a rapidity of execution once it does begin. Once these things begin, it's going to be like dominoes falling. It will happen quickly. Actually, it will happen in seven years with rapidity. It'll just be stunning, the things released on the earth, when these events we're going to study begin to take place. Now what we're going to find is a series of sevens. If you want to know what the magic number is in the book of Revelations, it's seven. And seven in Bible number or Bible numerology is the number for completion. This is the completion, the end of all things. You're going to see seven churches, seven spirits of God seven angels over the churches, and so on and so forth. We're going to hear the number seven over and over again. Powerful number. Revelations 1-4, John says, this letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. Don't you love that? Jesus has no beginning And Jesus has no end. You have a beginning, but you have no end. Jesus has no beginning or end. He's always been because He's God. He always will be because He's God. That's why He said to the people in His day, before Abraham was, I am. See, if you always were, then if you go back a thousand years, He am. If you go a thousand years from now, He am. Because if you always are and you inhabit eternity, you always am. He says right here, The one who came to me is the one who always was, is still to come, and always will be. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne. The Lord Jesus is revealed as he who was and is and is to come. Thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the seven spirits that John references... What Seven spirits, what is that? I thought there was one Holy Spirit. Well, here's what it means. The seven spirits John references are seven different manifestations or attributes that flow from God's majesty to the Messiah. Let's look at what these seven spirits or these seven manifestations are. The Spirit of the Lord. Then there is the Spirit of wisdom. Then there is the Spirit of understanding. There is the Spirit of counsel. There is the spirit of power, there is the spirit of knowledge, and there is the spirit of respect or reverence for the Lord. Those are the seven manifestations of the spirit that are associated with Jesus. He's our Lord, He's our wisdom, He's our understanding, He's our counselor, He's our power, He's our knowledge, and we revere Him. Amen? And you see this, this agrees perfectly with Isaiah's description of the Messiah, that was to come in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Look what it says. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit, look at this, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So there it is all the way back in Isaiah chapter 11. Now next, John describes in verse 7 the second coming of Jesus at the end of the ages. Now this is going to happen at the end of the book, but here at the very beginning, 
he's talking to us about the second coming. I want you to see how powerful this is. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and everyone will see him in every time zone, on every continent, all over the world, everyone will see him. This is not the rapture of the church when suddenly millions of people disappear off the planet mysteriously with no explanation. This is not the one who comes like a thief in the night. That's the rapture. This is the second coming at the end of the great tribulation period when Jesus appears to stop the war of Armageddon before man wipes himself out. They'll be fighting in the valley of Megiddo and suddenly... Every eye will see him. Because he's coming with the clouds. And look at this. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's talking about the Jewish people. They'll see him. And all the tribes of the earth will gaze upon him. And you know what it says they'll do? They will beat their breasts and mourn and lament over him. Even so, must it be? Amen, so be it. When people see him coming in the clouds and he comes to stop that war and the Antichrist is destroyed and Jesus comes to rule the planet, when they see him, they will beat their breasts, they will cry out, they will wail because they will realize he was true, it was real, they should have turned to him, and they didn't, and now they're facing judgment. This is a great example of how John jumps to the end of things before he begins the beginning. When Christ Jesus returns, which will be the final climactic event into history as we know it, those who pierced him, the Jews, all tribes of the earth, nations and peoples will mourn, beat themselves over what they missed. In verse 10, he says, John says, I was in the Spirit. I was wrapped in His power. I was caught up by His power on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a great voice like the calling of a war trumpet. What a voice. The voice he heard instructed him, what you're seeing you will write in a scroll and you will send it to the seven churches. I want you to grab your Bible and you look at the book of Revelation Thank God John wrote it down in a scroll, and we have it in our hand. All right? Powerful stuff. Now he says, or initially, here it goes to the seven churches. The churches he names were near Patmos. As a matter of fact, John was only a rowboat away from Greece where they were. Now, we'll show you real quickly. Uh, here's, here's where they were, Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Ephesus. That shows where they were. They were very, very close right here to where John was receiving this revelation. These were the seven areas where he was to send this letter. But God had a much bigger purpose for it than just these immediate seven churches. You, you're one of the purposes. And to bring a testimony to the last time. Now, contrary to what some may think, these churches were not full of believers singing kumbaya and hallelujah and walking perfectly before the Lord. They were not. 
They were imperfect bodies of people containing true believers and unsaved professors, but not possessors. Billy Graham said the greatest harvest field in the world is the church. Jesus sends the equivalent of a postcard to each of these churches with a warning to the lost and correction and encouragement to the saved. When John turned to see the source of the voice, look at what he saw. Revelations 1, verse 12 and 13. He saw seven golden lampstands. When he turned to look at this voice, there are seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. He sees seven lampstands and a person standing there. And this person was clothed with a robe which reached to his feet and with a girdle of gold about his breast. Awesome vision. Now, a lampstand was a lamp holder. We've seen them. We've seen them in movies, and some of you may have some. It's a lamp holder with seven spirals coming off of it. Oil was placed in each one with a wick in it, and they all burned at the same time. So seven, a, a lampstand with seven spirals coming out, and standing there in the midst of it, a person like a son of man. The phrase son of man has no article in the Greek, and here's what that means. It simply reads, one like son of man. You know why that matters? Because if he said one like a son of man, he'd have been comparing him. He's saying there's no comparison. One like son of man, there's only one. One like son of man, standing there. The description of the risen Son of God is awesome and it's stunning. He says in verse 13, He was clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now let me tell you what some of these colors symbolize in the Bible always. Gold symbolizes deity in Revelations. When you see gold, you're talking about deity. The girdle was a leather cincher that literally held the guts together during work like a real wide belt if you're doing manual labor. Paul said, gird yourself with the truth. So he, had, he was wrapped in the equivalent of a leather girdle. Now, verse 14 says, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Can anybody see with me that this is not the Lamb of God who walked around on planet Earth? This is the glorified Messiah. This is the glorified Savior. He's in heaven. John sees him. His hair, it's not brown. He's not walking around like a 30 year old young man. No, he's glorified. Hair white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like, a, like they were on fire. Remember the use of like? Remember I talked about like or as? See what he's doing here? He's saying, man, I saw that hair and I saw those eyes. The best I can do is say it looked like wool and they looked like they were on fire. It's the best I can describe it. White depicts wisdom. Gray hair, silver hair. Hallelujah. Fire pictures cleansing and purging. Here's what John's saying. His eyes 
were purging, they were cleansing. When you looked at them, his eyes were cleansing and they carried the gaze of purifying judgment. When Jesus looked at you, you melted. Especially this glorified Messiah here that we're seeing in the book of Revelation. Verse 15, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Brass or bronze are used in Scripture to symbolize strength. That's his feet. Voice like many waters means it commanded attention, like a rushing river. When you stand at Niagara Falls, it's majestic. It's this roar. He says his voice was like a roaring river. It was majestic, and it commanded attention. Awesome person he's seeing here. Then John sees that the risen, glorified Messiah is holding something. And what's he holding? Revelation 1.16 says he had in his right hand seven stars... Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, his face, was like the sun shining in its strength. Is this not powerful? You can't even look at the sun. You can get under it and enjoy it, but you can't look at it. See, John said his face was like, what was it like? The sun shining at high noon. This is our risen Savior. This is our risen Savior. Well, what does that mean? He was holding seven stars. Well, seven stars. Stars is from the Greek word asteros. And they represented the seven churches to whom John was initially addressing the revelation. So he's holding the churches in his hand. Oh, I love that. I tell you, it gives you confidence as a preacher, as a pastor, and as a flock of God's people. Doesn't it give you confidence to know that he's holding us in his hand? He's holding us in his hand. And then the two-edged sword, this means that judgment issued forth when the glorified Messiah speaks. And we're going to see this whole book has to do with Jesus Christ via angels judging a Christ-rejecting world. Every time He speaks, it's like a sword. And He's going to bring this, this world under harsh judgment for their rejection of Him. And we're going to see a lot of it has to do with for their martyring His people. So, look at this, Messiah, eyes like fire, feet like brass, hair like wool, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, face like the sun. No wonder when he comes back, they start beating themselves for what they realize they missed. When John sees all of this, he faints. <laughs> I would too. He faints. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, literally panicking. The word is phobos. He was, he was really, he was freaking. Phobos is the word used. Phobia, he was, he was, oh my Lord, what? He was undone. He fainted. He was, he was shaken to the core of his being by what he saw. 
And this Messiah says to him, don't be afraid. I'm the first and I'm the last. In verse 18, he assures John that he holds the keys to death and Hades. And keys always represent absolute control and authority. He holds the keys to death and he holds the keys to hell. And he holds the keys to heaven. He's the key holder. And can I tell you, the devil doesn't hold any keys. The devil is held by the key holder. So Jesus has absolute control and authority and over all things in his universe. Now the key to the entire book is given us in verse 19, chapter 1. Jesus says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. That's the key to the book. He's given the things that are and the things that will take place. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you tonight, there's not one thing happening in this world that God did not foresee. The major nations, the major players, all the end-time players, all the end-time ethnicities and, and, and nations and governments and political systems, they were all foreseen by God. You're going to see it. If you've never seen this before, it's going to, it's going to be a life-changing experience for you. Because we're going to see how he knew exactly what was coming. Clearly, the glorified Messiah is informing John that he's about to be shown the future. The things which will take place after this. Now, the first chapter is closed out with an explanation of some things he had just seen. Let's look at it and we'll close tonight. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. He says, let me explain it to you. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are seven churches. Now, the stars were the seven angels. And that's angelos. That's the Greek word angelos. And you know what? It, it's very possibly a lot of commentators think it's talking about the pastors of the seven churches. He's holding them in his hand. Hallelujah. And the lampstands were the seven churches themselves. So he, John sees the glorified Messiah holding the messengers and holding the churches and saying, I'm about to show you the future. I know you want more. But that's all I got for tonight. <laughs> Can we stand together and next week, postcards from the edge. And I'm going to show you what he said to the seven churches. And again, I got to tell you, you better stay with us because every chapter builds on the next. And what he said to the seven churches he said to you and to me, and I'll tell you, when we go through this next time, we're going to do all seven churches next time. When we see what he said to them, what each postcard said, it's going to change you. And it's going to help prepare you for the coming again of Jesus Christ. So when are you going to get into the Antichrist? He'll come. I mean, I want to see 666. It's coming. 
but we got to build up to it. Amen? All right, Father, we just thank you for your blessing tonight on your word. And church, I just feel like we need to pray before we go tonight for a sweep of God's Spirit that many, many people would be saved. Because what you're about to see in the weeks to come is it's going to be bad news to be in this world when the church has been taken out. I want you to think of somebody you know that needs the Lord. And I want you to take a minute to name their name and say, Lord, I'm asking you that blank, you fill in the blank, will be saved. Before it's too late. Lift up their name. Lord, we ask you that the Spirit of God will move in a powerful way in this community, move in a powerful way in this city and in this nation and in this world. Lord, help us to play a part in the harvest of souls that we know you are bringing in because time is short. So we lift up family members, neighbors, co-workers, spouses, children, parents. We ask you to touch them. In Jesus' name.